Hidden in Plain Sight, The Black Stones, by Peter White, read by Duncan McGoughlin. Episode 2 Chapter 5 Difficult Questions and Even Harder Answers Who do you really think runs the world, William? Governments, I think, said William, hopefully. His grumpy made the noise from the Family Fortunes TV show when a family member guessed a wrong answer, a grinding two-toned buzz. <coughs> the politicians, the media, the corporations, said Grampy sarcastically, that grinding two-toned buzz again. <coughs> All puppets. There are darker forces than you would believe at play here, and in most cities, but acutely in London. And how do they control the masses? P.R.S. The music royalty people are Satanists, William asked. No, no, you silly boy, listen to what I tell you. My God, you really are your father's son sometimes. There are secret societies all over the world, William. But all the ones that you can read about freely online or in most books are red herrings. Decoys, if you will. The real ones have members from all walks of life. From the politician, to the butcher, from a banker, to the police, fire service, and even scribes, the common red thread that binds them is the need to bring about change the only way they've ever known. Dark magic. This involves rituals and sacrifices to appease their spiritual rulers, keepers of their souls, which they've sold willingly long ago for a promise of a more fruitful life. Blinded by their faith and by greed, many people in power are blackmailed into joining the cults and bent to their will, usually attacking their weak spots with drugs or sexual temptations. Once they have evidence, they are exploited to control even the most determined or stubborn of mind. And then, once the right people are in place, P.R.S. Problem. Reaction. Solution. The problem is the thing they can create through various means, whether it be a mass shooting or a serial killer, an outbreak of disease or terrorist attack. They have mind control techniques that they have perfected over the last century and unlimited resources. The mainstream media is always at hand for full coverage. The reaction is the perceived outcry of the public, often overstated massively by the mainstream media for something that must be done to stop the same thing happening again. The solution is the outcome they wanted all along, whether it be tighter restrictions, a lowering of regulations, acquisition of natural resources, or even war. Very profitable war, especially if you finance both sides. War is often used to mask the true intention, but they make money out of it anyway. This is how it works. For an older man, he was quite the performer. You want something another country has, but your hands are tied legally from just taking it. So you create a situation where terrible atrocities occur in your country, including the loss of innocent lives, and blame it on that country where the thing you want is. The media does its job and spreads the message far and wide. People are outraged. They want justice. So you declare a war on that country, having to borrow millions or billions to spend on arms. Head over there for some retribution with the full backing of your nation and any other allies. Just to take what you really wanted from the country in the first place. 
Simple. The things to remember and what to look for, my boy, are the accounts. Always follow the money. Who does a government borrow money from? When they say a nation is in debt, to whom do we owe? Tick. Who owns or has shares in the arms company that supply the war machines and accessories? Tick. Who stands to benefit from the acquisition of natural resources or assets from the invaded nation? Tick. Connect the dots and you will usually find that they are all the same people. Names concealed deeply within guilds, foundations, trusts. Giant corporation enterprises, of course. He took a very dramatic seated bow. Whoa, whoa, William said. What does that have to do with London, Grampy? Everything, my dear boy, everything. It's where it all began. Are you sure you still want to go? His green eyes were watery, but sincere. It was the look on his face as he said it that repeated in William's mind. They had finished the game of chess, and even though William had won, he still felt like he'd lost. He wasn't sure if it was the brandy or unhinged conversation, but he felt quite tired, so he decided to head to bed. He said goodnight to his grumpy and headed back down to his room. He couldn't sleep. His head was spinning with all those stories. He thought of Ed being swallowed by the dark, and his ten-year-old grumpy, a kid with bright green eyes running for his life. Who really runs the world, he thought. Pictures and TV clips of politicians played on a loop inside his mind, while a two-tone grinding sound dominated his imagination. He was so relieved when his mind gave up the fight and let him slip away to sleep. Chapter 6 Secrets and Lies William woke to the sound of someone's retching in the bathroom next door to his bedroom. It was his dad, Lindsay. In between the horrendous noise, was Granny trying to comfort him. Better out than in, darling. Well done, dear. That was a good one. So proud of you. William had heard enough. He skipped past the bathroom, down the stairs and into the kitchen, where his mother was brewing a pot of tea. Looking a little worse for wear, but partially smiling at least. Morning, Mum. Good night, was it? Depends on your definition of good, I suppose, she said dryly. Your father decided to join Steve and Maxine's magical whiskey tour, she feigned amazement, which basically consisted of them standing around the drinks cabinet all night, drinking far too much whiskey and talking about how cool they used to be, which I assure you, they never were. Pisspot Steve had passed out by 11pm and had wet himself, and Maxine, the energizer bunny, kept going until her batteries fell out at 12. Your delightfully drunk father puked up the handful of Chippewa to canapes right into her cleavage. These are brand new, she screamed as she stomped off upstairs, not to be seen again that night. Meanwhile, I get lumbered with ensuring the survival of their awful self-righteous offspring all evening, bloody brats. William loved his mother when she was hungover. She lost her filter and just said things straight. As the morning dragged on, the filter was being rebuilt bit by bit, but was toppled occasionally by his granny. Granny had put Lindsay to bed again, after his vomithon, and checked in on him every five minutes. She was also troubled that William's mother 
couldn't seem to care less about her precious little boy, but was quite enjoying being needed by him for a change. A pathetic noise could be heard from the direction of his bedroom. Mummy's coming, Lindsay! Pathetic. It was Sunday, so Grampy had already drunk his coffee and left the house at 8am to play golf. He did this every week as part of his routine, so he certainly wasn't going to miss it just because his idiot son and family decided to descend upon them. He knew it was only a matter of time before Lindsay cornered him to have a chat about borrowing some money again. Grampy could feel it in his bones, so he decided to let off some steam before the thought of his irresponsible son ruined his swing. Considering it was October, it was actually a nice day. The sun was bright and clear in the sky, and their well-kept garden looked happy. The red acer tree stood proudly halfway down the garden, and its leaves looked vibrant in the sun. William's mum, Carol, decided the best course of action was to take her tea, book and headache tablets outside for some fresh air. William, on the other hand, had other ideas. He had his breakfast and headed back upstairs to shower and get changed. Luckily, his room had its own ensuite, as he could hear the vomiting start up again when he showered. Well done, darling! Once changed, he headed upstairs to the attic room. But the door to Grampy's study was quite clearly locked from the outside by a combination padlock with four numbers. Bugger, he said under his breath. He went back to his room and lay on his bed to think. Necessity is the mother of all invention, said William in his best grumpy tone. Pointing his finger, he said, Some things are not what they seem, and some things must not be forgotten, he chuckled to himself. But then it hit him. H. I. D. E. Some things are not what they seem, and some things must not be forgotten. What if these letters stood for something? Could it be... William counted out the first nine letters of the alphabet and wrote them down. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. He then added the numbers underneath. A1, B2, C3, D4, E5, F6, G7, H8, I9. It couldn't be that simple, surely. H equals 8... I equals 9, D equals 4, E equals 5. 8, 9, 4, 5. He felt a tingle in his stomach. He had to try. His dad was now asleep and snoring in his bed. It was 11am, and according to his mother, Grampy wouldn't be back until at least 2pm. He headed up to the attic room once more, and to his surprise, his granny was coming out of the study with empty cups brandy glasses, and a few plates. Hello, William. Just taking the opportunity to, um, clean while your grampy is out at golf, she said. The four numbers in a line on the open padlock that hung off the clasp were very clear to see. Eight, nine, four, five. William was right. A small smile gathered on one side of his mouth. Not that it mattered now. Eight, Nine, four, five, he asked. Yes, dear. He uses the same combination for everything. Memory isn't what it used to be these days. I beg to differ, Granny, he thought. There are things I bet he'd give 
anything to forget. William lied and said he'd left his phone charger in the study last night and needed to grab it. Be a dear and lock the padlock when you leave and don't linger. You know how funny he gets about people being in his study. She hurried off down the stairs, arms full, to carry on with her chores. Bingo. William was in. Chapter 7 The Study William walked into the study like he was walking on ice. He wasn't quite sure why, but it felt so wrong to be in there without Grampy present. He was even more aware of the noises the floorboards made as he walked down the room. They creaked slightly in places as if to send a message to anyone downstairs that he was up there, looking into things he shouldn't. He headed straight for the desk and opened the main centre drawer that he saw Grampy stuff some papers into. On top of a pile of newspaper cuttings and old crosswords was a birthday card in a bright pink envelope, stamped and addressed. But it was to Cherry Fairchild, not Granny, somewhere in London. Luckily, the glue on the envelope had not stuck very well, so William opened it without causing any damage. The card had a drawing of twelve red roses on the front, some glitter, and a huge italic scrawl that simply said, Happy Birthday. How original, he thought. Just then, a grampyism popped into his head. Sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, dear boy. Sorry, Grampy, he muttered to himself. He almost had second thoughts and put it back, but curiosity got the better of him. He began opening the card just to see if he'd written anything inside. Two newspaper clippings slipped down onto the desk. To my dearest Cherry, it's still not safe for you here. Lindsay is here to ask for more money again. I wish he had even half of your tenacity. Reading in between the lines, London is crawling with activity. I'm trying my best to cover your tracks. I have the book you needed. It's deposited here. S.D.B. 104, Cuthbert's Bank, 392, The Strand, London. Something to reflect upon. Face and hide. A.X. That's a strange sign-off, thought William, as he set it down on the desk to take a picture of it. Why not Dad or your father? One of the newspaper clippings that had slipped from the card was face up on the desk. American tourist missing in London. Wife pleads for any information. It had a picture of a slightly plump man in his late fifties, dressed in beige cords, with a white short-sleeved shirt and bum bag. In the wife's statement to the police, she said, he had gone looking for what he considered to be a local landmark he'd seen a few days previously, a large black house near Upper Thames Street. Blackest thing he ever saw, kept repeating it over and over. By that evening, he still hadn't come back and no one had seen him since. She reported his disappearance the following morning after a sleepless night. The other newspaper clipping was face down on the desk and had P.R.S. written in black biro, with the P circled in red. Problem, William thought. He flipped it over and the headline stated, NHS at breaking point. There is a public health emergency arising in London as the average waiting time for a doctor's appointment is extended to three weeks in some boroughs. 
an anonymous GP told us, We have a record number of immigrants presenting themselves for medical treatment at this time, and we are struggling to cope. It went on to talk about the delay in routine operations. What did all this mean? What on earth was his Aunt Cherry really doing in London that required such secrecy? William took pictures with his phone of all the bits he had found to study later and carefully placed the card with the clippings back into the drawer exactly the way he found it. He decided the best thing to clear his head would be a walk down to the canal. He left the study and closed the padlock as requested, rolling the numbers to a random combination. Down the stairs, he then grabbed his coat and was out the door at last, the autumnal air filling his lungs. He hiccuped once and recognised the taste of brandy in the back of his throat. That was a weird night. The look on Grampy's face still lingered in his mind, as well as the sound of his voice. Are you sure you still want to go? He walked down the hill towards the village shop while a girl was walking up. From a distance, she looked rather quirky, wearing denim dungarees, a pair of green wellies, and a multicoloured tie-dyed hemp thing. As they got close enough, he saw she was round his age. She had beautifully smooth dark skin, curly brown hair, lovely eyes that twinkled in the sun. She was quite attractive, but obviously a bit shy, as she couldn't even look him in the eye when he said, Good afternoon. She didn't even slow, just said, Hello, with a polite but tight smile, and carried on up the hill to the house opposite his grandparents. Hang on a minute, William thought. She must have been the one spying on me the night we arrived. He carried on down the hill to the shop, even though it was shut, just to look at the window and the local ads. Bit of a tradition for him, as they always made him chuckle. A far cry from the type of ads they had back home. Lost. Sheep. Quite large. Black mark on its right hind leg. Smells a bit like damp and cat wee. Last seen near Porter's Bridge. Please call the Wheat Sheaf Arms and ask for Sean. Classic. William took a picture of that one. Job vacancy. Obbod's Dairy Farm. General Farmhand. Duties include the early shift preparing the cows for milking and clearing down the gullies behind. Only the strong-willed and hardy need apply. A sense of smell or humour will not be necessary. Ask Jim the milkman for an application form. Brilliant. Can you imagine doing that? Click, went his phone. Apprentice opportunity. Bonson and Jehovah. Horologists. Makers of fine clockwork mechanisms and stunning timepieces. Apprentice required to learn all aspects of the horology trade. A keen eye is essential, and some experience using hand tools would be a distinct advantage. Salary, negotiable. Time wasters need not apply. Inquiries on Monday only. William walked towards the duck pond when a duck hopped out of the water, waddling right in front of him, and started pooing all along the water's edge. It went on for ages, and he couldn't work out why. He was opposite the pub, just as he jumped back in the water to join his quacking friends. The local pub had lots of locals sitting outside in the autumn sun, sipping beer and ordering food. The smell of beer made William feel a bit queasy as he passed, so he stepped up the pace and headed down the lane. So many beautiful buildings were in Amblefield. It's listed in the Doomsday Book for one reason or another, Local folklore states that King Henry I was passing through the village on his way to London and decided to relieve himself in a bush. The house that bush now partially obscures has a blue plaque nailed to it to state the fact. 
The owner, a rather chubby man called Ralph, had it commissioned himself, but no one, especially visiting folk, needed to know that. In a world full of uncertainty, on a nice day like today, there's something you could bet your hat on. He'll be outside his house, on a wooden stepladder, polishing that bloody plaque. Maybe Steve Pisspot McIntyre is of raw stock after all, William thought. I wonder how perky he is today after last night's party. William passed an old thatched cottage that stood proudly on the corner of the lane and noticed the little straw animals woven into the ridge. Each thatcher has their own signature mark so that they could tell who thatched that building last. When he finally made it down to the canal, everything, including his thoughts, slowed down. He walked in silence, listening to the birds arguing in the trees and the fish splashing in the canal. Peace at last. There was his favourite spot further up by the lock that had a bench overlooking the drop. He sat down, took out his phone, and looked to see if, by a miracle, they directed a cell phone mast overnight, only to be disappointed again. He looked through his pictures instead. A few snaps of his hungover mum waving at him in the garden, not using all her fingers either. Well, that's just rude. The pictures of the shop window ads made him laugh again. Always did. The thatched animals, the canal, the card, then the newspaper clippings. He read the American tourist one again. Black House, Upper Thames Street. It didn't really register the first time in the study, but now it caught his interest. So did the American guy find this house? And is that where he went? William didn't know, but knew a way to try and find out. He needed to access the internet somehow, so he decided to do what the locals did. Go to the pub. Chapter 8 The Wheat Sheaf The pub outside was busy. Barmaids were collecting glasses, while others were handing out pints of ale from little round trays. Thanks, Lav, but you spilled a bit, one man said, who seemed to be covered head to toe in what can only be described as bird poo. Don't get shitty with her, his mate said. Bit late for that. Look at the state of me. I told you not to sleep by that pond. The whole table erupted with laughter, with ale being spilled everywhere and crisp packets falling to the floor, only to be set upon by Stan, the pub's resident Jack Russell, who was really enjoying his afternoon and all the crisps that fell to the floor. William managed to get past the squad without drawing any attention to himself and slipped inside the pub, where the contrast was like night versus day. Quiet and peaceful. Yes, you could still hear the general commotion outside and the occasional eruption of spilled drinks, but much better. There were only two people in there, not including the staff. One older gentleman, of a similar age to William's grampy, was sat at the table on his own, flat cap and cane next to him. A half-drunk pint of ale sat precariously close to the table's edge and he was reading the Sunday Times. The other man was sitting on a tall stool at the bar he was in his early thirties, a bit tubby, but dressed smartly. He obviously had a thing for one of the barmaids, as every time they left the bar, he was checking his hair in the reflection of his phone, propped up against one of the beer pumps. William walked up to the bar and waited for the barmaid to return from a drink delivery. She walked in through the door and just let out an audible sigh. 
composed herself, adjusted her top and walked back behind the bar. What can I get you? she said, with the exact same smile all barmaids have, which implied, I might be single, I might not be. Buy a few more drinks and you might find out. You might not. Um, pints of, um, God, I sound like granny. Bitter, please. The barmaid paused. Masons? she asked. Um, okay, coming right up. It all happened so fast, she grabbed a pint glass and used the middle beer pump. Only trouble was, the smartly dressed guy's phone was propped up against that one. Not anymore. As she pulled the pump toward her, the phone seemed to defy gravity and slid up the pump handle. And as she forcefully pushed the pump handle forward to go for another pull, it launched the phone into the air, spinning almost as if in slow motion, across the bar and straight down into the elderly gentleman's pint glass with a kaplunk. The chap at the bar spun on his stool to face William, arms outstretched in anger. What did you choose Masons for? Nobody with half a brain drinks that shite. Well, it's probably because I have more than half a brain, William thought. At that moment, his phone started to ring in the pint glass. It sounded like the music they used to play at Butlins when you were under the water trying out your new goggles. He wandered over to the old man's table and apologised extensively for getting his phone in his pint. William could see him recounting how it happened with massive arm movements. Then he was pointing towards William and shouting, Masons? Masons? To which the old man just said, This is Masons. I quite like it. Good day. And returned to reading his paper. Hello? The angry man said whilst answering his soggy phone, bitter dripping down in lines on his face towards his chin. No, I'm not underwater. I'm, I'm not. It's not gone well. No, I'm not down a well. I said it hasn't gone well. Hello? Hello? He walked outside and William felt some relief. He heard the same word, masons, and the outside table erupted again. This time, two or three glasses smashed and the laughter carried on for ages. Thanks for that, the barmaid said. I've been trying to get rid of him for ages. Every Sunday he comes in and he just stares. I think he must like you. Well, you think, she said sarcastically. You're not from around here, are you? Where do you come from? I live in Perrins Grove, just outside of Barchester. It's a bit different than here. A bit rougher. Bigger, she said, starry-eyed. Crowded, said William, trying to be realistic. Exciting, she said, looking out into the distance, hopefully. William gathered that she'd outgrown this village and needed to get out. Grass is always greener, I guess, he said awkwardly. Um, do you have Wi-Fi here? Yeah, yeah, yes we do. It's a snail pace, but it's better than nothing. Code is on the board. She pointed towards a blackboard above the bar, whilst grabbing her little tray, adjusting a smile, and walking back out of the front line. Finally, he thought. William sat at the back of the pub in a darker spot to keep out of sight from anyone who may enter the bar. Found the network and entered the password. Password 1234? Really? Come on. It worked, and he was soon receiving about 30 WhatsApp messages all at once, which seemed to turn his phone into an alarm clock. Ding, 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 ding. He scrambled for the temporary silence button, hit it, and sighed. Bloody thing. The phone wouldn't let him search until all the notifications had come through. 
Anti-social media, more like. Once it had finished and calmed down, he went on to the map application and typed in Upper Thames Street, London. The map opened and zoomed into the part of London where Upper Thames Street is. It was in the city, not just London, the square mile. That took him back. William was 13 and in the garden with his grampy when he first learnt about the city of London. London is the city, I hear you cry. He was a Shakespearean actor. Naha, I know something you may not know. The city of London is a city, within a city, you see? No, not really, 13-year-old William had said. The city of London, otherwise known as the Square Mile, is the original Roman settlement of 47 AD that they called Londinium. They built a wall around it over the next couple of hundred years. By 1410 AD, the Romans had had enough and decided to go home. The empire was in decline, the weather turning bad, and the city was now mostly deserted. In 886 AD, the Anglo-Saxons reoccupied the walled city and begun to breathe some life into the cold stone fort it had become. Alfred the Great made sure that Londonburg, as he named it, thrived. With a lot of manpower, he set about making the city a place of wonder and laid down a new city street plan. He managed to repel the Viking raids that had become a regular occurrence and stood strong against any enemy that dared to walk up to the walls. The Vikings learned not to bother. The Picts learned too. People learned, and as a society, evolved. So did the city. London, as we know it today, grew around the walled city and spread far and wide. As the years passed by, the strength of the city of London endured. The walls have come down bit by bit, and sometimes the only giveaway that you have crossed the border can be a small coat of arms with a red cross on the street signs. But it's a different place altogether. The size of the population that actually lives there is less than 10,000. But Monday to Friday, a staggering 500,000 people are employed there. The boundaries are marked by stone or metal dragons holding a medieval-style shield, which looks like a St. George's cross. If you look closely enough, you'll see a sword in the top left-hand corner. This supposedly depicts the sword that beheaded St. Paul, whom the massive cathedral was built to honour. It has its own laws, own police force, fire department and hospital. It has its own Lord Mayor, who rides in a beautiful gilded carriage and wears ceremonial clothing, while the Mayor of London just wears a suit like any other businessman. They have a representative that sits in the Houses of Parliament while in session that doesn't conform to either wing, called the Remembrancer. He is not an elected MP. He is there to ensure any decisions that are made do not adversely affect the City of London's interests. It also happens to be one of the most influential financial capitals in the world. Even the Queen has to ask permission to enter, but I'm not sure how true that bit still is. There are two other places in the Western world that hold a similar position and privilege. Do you know where they are, William? he asked. No, I don't, William said bashfully. He stretched three of his large fingers out and pulled them down with the other hand for dramatic effect. 
Number one, the City of London. He pulled one finger down. Number two, Vatican City in Rome, home of the Sistine Chapel, painstakingly painted by Michelangelo, and many other exquisite pieces of art. It is also the smallest sovereign state in the world, protected by the Swiss Guard. Its vaults are said to contain more lost knowledge than anywhere else on earth. He pulled another finger down. Number three, Washington DC in America. DC stands for District of Columbia. He pulled the last finger into his fist. Columbia is derived from Christopher Columbus, who was credited for the discovery of the new world. He didn't actually land anywhere near North America and initially thought he'd landed in India, hence why they called the indigenous population at the time Indians. Americans know full well how to make something wrong seem right just by being loud and repetitive. Washington is named after one of the founding fathers of the USA and after its revolution and subsequent independence from the British, its first president, George Washington. The USA has 50 states. Washington, D.C. isn't part of any of them and stands proudly as their capital. Think of all three as a triangle, Grampy said. A triangle? Like a pyramid? asked William. Exactly. You have, at the top, the city of London representing finance. On the bottom left, Washington DC, representing military. And on the bottom right, the Vatican City, representing religion. Some people think that they're all controlled by just one group of people, Grampy said. Really? Why would they want all of that? Willem said naively. Why indeed, said Grampy. Why would anyone want all that power? Just then, William's phone rang. It snapped him out of his daydream memory and scared the crap out of him. It was his mum. Bill, where are you? Uh-oh. He knew something was up. They only ever called him Bill when trying to keep him calm. I'm at the wheat sheaf, using the Wi-Fi. What's up? It's Grampy. He's been hit by a stray golf ball. We're driving to the hospital. Pick you up on the way in one minute. Oh, my God. God, poor Grampy. He downed his bitter, but left a few sips, placed the almost empty pint glass back on the empty bar, and ran outside past the rabble, who gave out a... Yeah! Where's the fire? More beer and Chris flying everywhere. William could hear his dad's car coming before he could see it. The throaty noise got louder as the little car careered down the hill towards the pub. As it came closer, he could see a very worried granny sat in the front passenger seat, with her hands on the dashboard eyes shut tight as he screeched to a stop outside the pub. Get in! Lindsay shouted out the window. He looked less green than the last time William saw him, albeit a bit sweaty. William climbed in the back of the car with his mum and they wheel spun up the road, leaving a large black cloud outside of the pub and smashing a few anti-glasses in their wake. Yay! He really hoped his grampy was okay. Hidden in Plain Sight, The Black Stones, by Peter White, was read by Duncan McGoughlin. Written and produced by Peter White. Music and folio by Peter White.